0: Lord, as we look now into Your Word and continue to speak of what You have revealed there, we praise You that we've been privileged to sing of it, to rejoice in what Christ has done. We rejoice together as a congregation around this victory of Christ as He has defeated death and has provided salvation. There may be some among us who do not know of this salvation personally not come to trust in this message, in this good news. We pray that You draw them to Yourself today, and we pray in behalf of all who have come to that knowledge that we would rejoice and continue to do so around the Word of God this morning. Thank You for this time together and for all that You've accomplished for us in Christ. May Your Spirit work here uniquely and aid us in this time together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. There are times that we want God to be loud, to burst upon the scene and to trumpet His greatness. There's other times we want God to be quiet, to kind of stay out of the way and leave us to ourselves. Through the ages, God has proven to be both loud and quiet, and quite often in the opposite direction of what people want. During His earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly frustrated His enemies in this very way. Show us a sign, they demanded. Perform a miracle so that we'll be absolutely sure that you are who you say you are. Be loud and we'll listen. Jesus knew He could snap His fingers and with a command, drain the Sea of Galilee, and they'd not be one inch closer to believing in Him. He knew that miracles never heal the soul. They may be attractive. They may get our attention. They may speak of something else beyond the miracle itself, but miracles do not cure the soul. And so Jesus responded quietly. Remember what he said Matthew 12? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. From the standpoint of his enemies, that was way too quiet. They wanted something that they could see that they could hold on to, that some way they could prove that he was who he said he was. I just give you Jonah. Look back to the Scriptures, look back to ancient days, and watch him. No. We want something loud. We want you to do something. Then we'll get it. And then, what do they do? They crucify him. The very people who demand loud did all that they could to silence Him forever. But then, as they seek to silence Him, the Lion of the tribe of Judah roars in triumph. In the early hours of Easter, the Jesus that they had tried to quiet, they were happy to seal away in a tomb, rose from the dead. For the next 40 days, He appeared to His followers and taught them about the kingdom of God, all the nuances of it, and undoubtedly how the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to him and prepared for these days. He prepared them well before he ascended then to the right hand of God in glory. He was alive and he ascended into the presence of the Father. From there, as John the Baptist had prophesied and as Jesus assured his disciples, the reigning Christ poured out his Spirit upon his followers as they awaited in the city of Jerusalem. And in a moment of time, the once cowering, defeated disciples were transformed into courageous witnesses. Hiding right after his death, now they are out there among the crowd saying, He lives. Jesus is alive. We have seen him. He is risen. He is reigning. He is saving sinners. And we can imagine Jerusalem is pulsating with the energy. As Peter preached to the crowds in the temple courts, demonstrating that the Hebrew Scriptures had always prophesied this, we see it now, let us proclaim it to you, see it here, He's risen and He's reigning. And then at that festival of Pentecost, His message after the Spirit has baptized the followers of Christ, Peter stands up and says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, And he concludes his sermon, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has loudly announced His glory as you sought to silence Him. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift that was poured out upon them by the risen Christ. This washing clean of their sins, this will come to you. This baptism will come to you as you repent and trust Him. There at the festival of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, 3,000 Jews responded in faith. To the message of the risen Savior with more responding day by day we find in Acts 2 in verse 47. One day at a time as one believer proclaims the message to another, there is a response that is widespread. And To the utter dismay of Jesus' enemies, He just would not stay quiet. They stuffed Him in the tomb. They wanted Him to go away. They wanted people to forget it wasn't only that they hadn't forgotten, it was that the risen Christ was continuing to act. He was here in Jerusalem. He was there on heaven's throne and He was alive. Following in that line, we come to Acts 3 this morning. And we see the apostles healing a lame man by the power of the risen Christ. In Acts chapter 3, this narrative indicates from the start, as we follow from chapter 2, that Christ is risen, that He is alive, that He is active, that He is working. Verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was there. He was carried there. They laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. The scene is set. Peter and John, two of Jesus' twelve apostles, eyewitnesses of His resurrection and stewards of His teaching. There's two formal prayer times, one at 9 a.m. at the temple and one at 3 p.m. And so, mid-afternoon, Peter and John approach this massive complex with other worshipers. They're making their way upward to the temple courts. We don't, we don't know the route that they took. But they ascended the stairs to one, at one of these entry points, one of these gates that leads up, and it's always steps up to this temple mount. And they entered one of them, and as they do, they come to this beautiful gate. Now, historical records describe the beautiful gate, but never actually locate it. So that's lots of fun for scholars to try to figure out which of the gates was the beautiful gate and where it was, and there's all kinds of answers. We can't figure that out. All we know is that the gates funneled worshipers providing a strategic spot for this man to earn a living the only way he could in that day. The only thing that would have been provided for him as a man who was unable to walk was to seek alms from fellow Israelites, to ask for gifts from people. And so very strategically, he is placed at one of these gates, undoubtedly on the steps or on the flat area right in front of the gate, and that's where everybody's channeled, and so he has the ability to gain a living that way. In verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And indeed, he was going to receive something from them, just not what he had anticipated. Verse 6, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Jesus, that rabbi who died Over seven weeks ago, that Jesus, betrayed by a disciple, condemned as a blasphemer by the Jewish authorities, crucified as a nuisance by Rome, Jesus has no glorious name and He has no earthly power. Unless this risen Christ continues to act and to perform miracles walk. This man had no idea how to walk any more than he had an idea of how to operate a nuclear sub. And so forgive that he's a bit Caucasian it appears in this picture, but you get the idea. He's seated there somewhere and they have to lift him up to walk. And his feet and his ankles are loosed. It's interesting, these words are not found elsewhere in the New Testament. They are really fairly formal medical terms that give a description to the man's healing. And who wrote the book? Of course, it was the physician Luke. And so with with technical terms, he describes the man's healing, that his, verse 7, his feet and his ankles were loose. He took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately he was made strong. The point is that Jesus is alive. The point is that he does have power and it's time for the man to give his legs a test drive. Verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. He had his place staked out there and they all knew it. That's where he asked for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. As I mentioned, there's all kinds of discussion as to where this might have been. I have a little arrow here on this graphic of a uh, gate that we'll look at here in just a moment. But we can get the idea that people are passing through and up to the temple. And where was it then that he passed into the temple courts? Uh, looking at that where that arrow is there, and then identifying it with the gates that you see there entering in. It could be this. It could be this place. Some would argue that it is, the beautiful gate. And he walks up then 210 steps up towards to the temple court on these new legs. We don't know if that's where it is. If it is, then if that's where it is today. It's been covered over by another wall, but you can just get the feel of it as they're coming up and they raise this man up and he now with them going into the temple courts is leaping and in fact clinging to them. But in any event, as he leaps about like a child at play, the crowds begin to gather and they identify this man somewhere in the eastern edge of the complex It's referred to as Solomon's portico. So somewhere in that range there, right underneath where those words identify that, maybe he came up through that south wall and up those 210 steps and into that temple court, whatever gate that it was, we know that they gathered then under that portico Uh, that I circled it there, it's uh, the other side, but you kind of get the sense these pillars, they're tall pillars, a big area, and a lot of people could gather there, and they're gathering together and saying, what has happened? This is a man that was always at that gate. He was always unable to walk from birth. This is him. He's walking. What is going on? You can see the crowd gather Let's just step aside for a moment. I think it's helpful for us in the world in which we live. Well, let's just consider for a moment the nature of this miracle. I think it's significant. First of all, this man suffered a congenital condition. That is, it's from birth. There's nothing correctable here. And on that point, his condition was publicly and universally known to be incurable. There was no one saying that he just started to fake this a couple years ago. They knew this was incurable. Thirdly, he did not seek out or even know those who were ministering to him. This was not an arrangement that they had made. He didn't know who these two individuals were. And on that point, he sought money, not healing. Forgive me for the cynicism, but he also didn't give money in order to get healing. He wasn't after healing. That was the furthest thing from this man's mind. Probably dreamed of it all the time, but that's not what he was after here. And number five, his healing was public, it was total, and it was undeniably miraculous to everyone. There wasn't a gathering around this man to say, "Now nah, this must be fake, this isn't really real, let's test this out, let's see if this has re- really happened to him. None of that. Everyone knew what had happened. It was public. It was unplanned. It was total healing. Undeniable to everyone. Even the enemies of Christ never went after this as having not happened. In fact, there are authors that you can read from ancient times who speak of Jesus as the magician. Now, they're not saying that nicely. But they are not denying that he was doing what he was doing. There are others who speak very pointedly of his miracles who are not Christians in the ancient texts. There was no denying what had happened. As we think on this list, so often what passes for a miracle today usually looks pathetic by comparison to what we see here. And they're often met by near universal skepticism and impermanent results. Chase the history, watch the investigations, and this is what you'll find. Widely denied, with great skepticism and impermanent results. The nature of this miracle is something very other. It is significant, but just as important as the miracle is the meaning of the miracle in the grand scheme of salvation. And this we must not miss, or we are just turned on by the noise we see this great miracle. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? And we could talk for a long time here about the guy running up the steps and jumping up and down and clinging to Peter and John. You know what happens? If you watch this, if you ever see a last second shot in a basketball game, what does everybody do? They all go running at the guy that made the shot. And usually you wonder if the guy's going to come out alive. You know, There's just this desire to cling to and hold to whoever was the great victor in that moment. It's just human nature. This guy's clinging to them, he's holding on to them, and people are coming around. It's almost like a last-second shot was made. But it's not about the shot. It's not about the amazing event. It's what it stands for. It's what it symbolizes. Sin results in death. The precursor of death is disease and physical dysfunction. This is all connected in God's work of salvation to, for instance, Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, there are prophecies of the coming age when God's promised Messiah will rule over a world in which the curse on nature is suspended. The desert places will blossom like a rose. Nature will rejoice and sing when Messiah comes. All of this is prophesied in Isaiah and it adds this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus performed miracles in order to demonstrate the authenticity of His message. But let's connect it here. He did miracles not just to do miracles, but to connect it to what God had prophesied through the centuries. One will come who will reverse the curse. And in causing this man to leap like a deer, in the name of the risen Christ, there is an evidence of His messianic mission. This miracle is not rootless. It is not random. The healing of this man in the name of Jesus proves that the Messianic age has dawned. It has broken in with power upon this lame man. So like the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts, this miracle demonstrates that Jesus is alive. Again, the point is not merely to be awed by the miracle but to believe in Jesus' saving authority. That is what is being demonstrated. And so, while the man clings and while the crowd comes around and celebrates this amazing event, it's not about Peter and John. They're not going to get wealthy off of this miracle. They're not going to ask for any money. It's not about them. It's about Christ. I think today of the so-called faith healers that run around and always find a way to get other people's money in their pocket in the work that they do. How foolish is this? Maybe like, consider a golf course and there's this big tournament and this major golfer hits this long ball and everybody watches as it hits the green and bounces right into the cup. Hole in one. One stroke, ball in the cup. Can you imagine all these people standing there watching this ball, they see it land in the cup, and they run to the hole, and they pull out the golf ball and start worshiping it. This is an amazing ball. It traveled all that way, and it landed in this hole. What an amazing ball. And they hold the ball up, and they're all jumping and down looking at the ball. How foolish. You don't say the ball is significant. You say, who hit it? That's who's significant. That's who's to be praised. This miracle is like that ball. It's amazing what happened. Amazing. But the whole point is not the healing. The whole point is the Christ who heals. He's alive. And here is the evidence. This is what Peter is announcing. This is what the Old Testament prophets announced. And how are we to interpret then what has happened here? How are we to respond We note then secondly, as the narrative moves, that Peter now proclaims salvation in the name of the reigning Christ. Verse 11, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together, to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? You see what he's saying. It's like the golf ball illustration. This is just the golf ball. Here's the deal. So the man clings to his deliverers, but Peter says it's not us, it's not our power, it's not our godliness, and that's not the point. This healing rather bears witness, verses 13 to 15, of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not a mistake that he speaks of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First, the God who chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob chose Jesus and glorified him. These are echoes of Isaiah 52 and 53. God's chosen servant would come, suffer, and then be glorified. So we read, for instance, in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, Behold, my servant will act wisely. He, will, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This servant theme, and we could trace it through chapters. 52 and 53, this servant theme Jesus is connecting to in his ministry and Peter is connecting to here. After Jesus died on the cross, the Father magnified Christ as victor over death and he was seated in triumph at God's right hand. That's what God did. This is what Jesus is doing. But with all that God has done, here's the problem. He raised up His servant, He has exalted His servant, and you killed Him. He whom God magnified, you executed. Jesus was holy and righteous, we read here in verse 15. He was sinless and deserving of all praise and honor, and you killed Him as a sinner. But God raised Him from the dead. How does that hit you? You're hearing this message and you learn that you've killed the author of life. That you've silenced him. And then learn that God raised him from the dead. There's only one sane response and that is fear and repentance. Back to the point of verse 12. Peter was not the source of the healing. The source, it's obvious at this point, but he pulls it to conclusion in this explanation. Verse 16, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Entirely public, before everyone, healed through faith in Christ. So Jesus did this. The risen Savior is the name by which this one has been saved, the one that you killed. He's not gone away. And the subtle point, of course, is that this man gladly trusted Jesus' power to save him, and you should likewise trust Christ. So we look now then at the appeal, the explanation, Jesus is the risen reigning Savior. This miracle is evidence of that. Secondly, under this point, The appeal, you must repent of your sin and trust God's plan of salvation in Jesus. Verse 17, and now brothers, let's bring this around to where it needs to be. And now, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. It's a gracious word of comfort. It's not an excuse. Peter simply assures them that they could not have fully comprehended their crime. A point he will support as he continues. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. That is, God, let's think of it, God planned the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. He planned it. By His sovereign purpose, before time began, He ordained these events. God gave his son to die as the sacrificial lamb. There's only one proper response, verse 19, and that is to repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, that is, He is in heaven, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Repent. What does that mean? To turn from sin and self-trust, to put your trust and your confidence in Christ as Savior. And what are the results? One, Sins are forgiven. These are just merciful, gracious words. You killed the author of life, but come to him and notice that his arms are wide open. Turn from your way of bringing him to death and embrace him as he embraces you. And He'll forgive your sins, number one. Secondly, times of refreshing will return. And thirdly, we will have the return of Christ. It's a reference to His millennial reign. Nature will be refreshed by the removal of the curse. The desert will blossom like a rose, Isaiah tells us. Jesus reigns from Jerusalem over the earth. All of this prophesied in Scripture. This is all coming about. If you will repent, these times of refreshing will come eventually. Eventually as Christ returns. So it's all prophesied. It will all be fulfilled. All will be restored as promised. For now, Christ remains in heaven until His return, and He will return. And the evidence is this man's healing. He is still Messiah. He is the servant. He is restoring all things as He restores this man's ability to walk the way He was created to walk. To support this assertion, then, Peter points to the objective proof that God spoke through the ages by his prophet, foretelling all that Jesus would accomplish. Verse 22 Moses said, he's spoken of Abraham, think Abraham a covenant. Moses said, Mosaic covenant, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Well, long, long ways from Moses. Approximately 1,500 years. And Peter says, I want you to go back and to think about what Moses said. He prophesied that one would come and that all who do not hear him will be destroyed. Deuteronomy 18.15 18.15 is where we find this text. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And that brings us right here to right now. Are you listening? Am I listening to this prophet who has prophesied so long ago who would come? Now undoubtedly, many would say that this points to actually to Moses, then to, from him, the prophet, to the one like him, Joshua. But there is in the understanding of prophecy the near fulfillment and the far. It might have pointed originally to Joshua, but it points ultimately to Christ. So Abraham spoke of Christ And Moses in the Mosaic covenant spoke of Christ. And the issue is are you listening? For centuries, prophets continued to tell God's people that he would come. You think of how long that is. There'd be a lot of people that stepped in and said, I'm that prophet. Peter says, This is the prophet. He repeatedly said that He would rise from the dead on the third day, and He did. He promises to return to establish His rule on earth, and He will. The great danger is that you don't listen. You don't heed this message. And Moses wasn't alone, certainly. Verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. Samuel, the first major prophet, set in motion the son of David paradigm when he anointed David king. David, the pattern for this later son and Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7, the promise to establish David's throne forever. All of these prophets through all of these centuries distance from one another. Abraham spoke. Moses spoke. Samuel spoke and all of it locks into the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. This didn't happen overnight, people. God has been preparing us for this moment for centuries. And this man walks because Christ is alive. And someone who is dead cannot reign. Someone who is dead cannot return, but Christ will. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets, he says now to his hearers. You're the sons of these prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in you, in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God's carefully conceived, patiently executed, fully integrated plan of salvation centers on the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham's family is chosen to mediate this salvation to all people, including Gentiles, as Galatians makes crystal clear as we look back to the Genesis 12 prophecy. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This is how that blessing has come. In Christ in the risen, reigning Savior who will return, and who we must all come to in repentance. Verse 26, God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first. Who's who's you? Sent Him to you, Jews, first. He will send him to the Gentiles. He will go to the Gentiles. He has gone. He has begun to do that. His witnesses will take the message to all the world. But he has come to you first, to you Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. To get you to turn. To rescue you from your sin was his whole mission. To you first, this servant comes. Again, the reflection of the theme of Isaiah. God's servant who suffers in the place of sinners and is exalted by the Father. To point us from our wickedness. To turn us away. How do we turn from our wickedness? It's not to make yourself better to build yourself up by turning over a new leaf or something like that. It is this, as we put together the good news. How am I turned from my wickedness? First, I put Jesus to death. I put Him to death. We come to the recognition that it is my sin that led to His death. My sin was placed upon Him, and He paid the condemnation of God's righteous and holy anger against me. He bore my sin on the cross. Secondly, to realize that He did that, the prophesied Messiah who came in fulfillment of God's plan did that as the Lamb of God who took our sin and drained the penalty against it by dying in our place. He paid the price taking the place of the sinner. You see how out of sync that is with the idea that I will turn from my wickedness by depending on myself. I'll turn from my evil and, bring, and, and gain God's pleasure and satisfaction in me by being a better person than I am. It's not by works of righteousness which we are saved. It is by the work of Christ by which we are saved. We come to recognize it as Him taking my sin, my place, and paying the cost for me. Salvation is a gift from start to finish. It is a gift. It's a gift we receive. It's a gift to which we respond. He is saying here to them, you must repent. You must turn in reception of this gift. But it's a gift. It's what Christ has done. It's the good news of the work that He's accomplished. And this message is given its necessary bandwidth by the resurrection of Jesus. It's all theory until He rises from the dead, until He defeats the penalty of sin, which is death. Well, Jesus hasn't remained stuffed in the grave. He's alive. He is risen, He's reigning, and He's healing. He heals this man He's acting in a very loud way and his enemies don't like it one bit. And how do they respond? Chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's the message. That's the message of this man's healing. It's the resurrection of Christ and they don't like it. Quiet down. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. And on the rejection goes. But Let's bring it back to us as we perceive this account and its connection to us. You may say, in fact, as many people do, I would believe in God if only He would show Himself to me if He'd just show Himself in some way, if He'd show up and do something, then I'd believe in God. I'd believe in this message of Jesus. If He'd get me out of this impossible jam, if, if He would appear to me, if He would heal me, if He would give me my heart's desire, then I'd believe in Him. Well, go with me just for a moment in your mind's eye to Cape Canaveral in Florida. we will go back a few years during the space shuttle launches that we're heading out all the time and are rising up, I guess we say. But let's just imagine that there's this family of an astronaut and they go and they're obviously going to watch this rocket launch as, they, as, it, as the shuttle is sent into space. And I, I've i never stood there. Some of you maybe have, but you just get a sense of the power and the noise of it as that rocket launches into space. And then this family with great rejoicing sees the shuttle come back and land on an airstrip and they hug and celebrate and they're so excited about what's happened and their astronaut is back safely. How wonderful all that is. You can picture that scene and then imagine somebody coming along and saying, I don't believe it really happened because I didn't see it and if I could see something like this, then I might believe it. I just think it's a conspiracy. I don't think this thing's really happened. I've got to see it first. It's kind of foolish, isn't it? Now, I realize there's people out there like that <laughs> that do actually think it's all a conspiracy. Nobody ever walked on the moon. Nothing's ever gone up, and this is all of his story. Most of us, I think, recognize it's happened. But I can pick up the newspaper the next day and say there was a shuttle launch or a shuttle landed and I can believe it. I can believe the report of what actually happened. What people witnessed. Right? I don't have to see it to believe that it happened. Now if you're standing there and the rocket is launched into the air, there's this loud noise. It is so obvious. You get this sense as your body is just shaking with the noise that something big is happening here. But you can sit at home in your easy chair with an open newspaper and a cup of something next to you. I say tea, but that doesn't work for most of you. But you got coffee next to you there, and it's quiet, but it happened. You read about it, you see it, it happened. This narrative from the annals of the ancient church witnesses to the resurrection and the continuing reign of Christ. All you need is this text. All you need is here. And God has given you all you need. NASA doesn't need to come around to my door and ring the doorbell and give me this long explanation with video evidence that they've sent a rocket into space. I can just get the message in the news and I can read the news and believe the news and know that this happened. The real issue here is not that God doesn't show up. It's not that He's not loud enough. The issue is that we demand of Him another sign. Give me something else here. Do something so I'll believe in you. Well, He could do things and do things and do things, and you'd never quite come around to believing. This is all we need. And the proofs. I mean, wouldn't you expect if He's Jesus, He's truly God? If Jesus is God in flesh, come to live a sinless life and pay the cost of our sin, then would you not expect Him to do something to prove it? Of course. Imagine a Savior that never did anything unusual. Any of us could claim to be that Savior. Jesus did things, loud things. There were centuries of prophecy Telling us where He would be born. Telling us how He would die. Telling us between how He would live, what He would do, the miracles that He would perform, the evidences that the Messianic age had come. There's a reason that people received Him on Palm Sunday with great celebration. He gave us prophecy. Century after century after century of prophecy. No collaboration possible between the individual's writing. And He gave us miracles. He raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He allowed people who had never walked before to walk. He gave us proof, just like here. Everybody knew this man, at least those that went through that gate, knew of this man. They knew it was congenital. They knew he could not be healed by any power on earth. He gave us the miracles, the loud miracles. He gave us the loudest of all the rocket launch, so to speak, of his resurrection. That's as loud as loud gets. I mean, it's frightening. But at the end of the day, with the resurrection as the evidence of who he is, these Sadducees say, be quiet, go away. And it reminds us that what changes the human heart, what will change your heart, is knowing and trusting the good news. Who Jesus was, what Jesus did, who you are, and then to respond in repentant belief in this good news. It's all right here. And there is nothing that Jesus needs to do to convince you. It is not by works any more than the lame man was healed because he chose to stand in his own power. It's a power from outside. It's a message of good news of what Christ has done. It's that to which we respond. Jesus is reigning from heaven's throne and the evidence is sitting here in the text before us. He is pouring out His Spirit. And the evidence is to change hearts of those gathered here and throughout this world today who have been baptized by the Spirit, cleansed of their sin, and know the presence of the Spirit of God within their soul. It's all the evidence necessary, and it's amazing evidence. And Those who place their trust and their faith in Christ, this good news transforms. As was told In Genesis 12, verses 1-3, through through the offspring of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And here we are. Singing this morning. Lifting up songs that make no sense to a lost world. Finding a joy within that is otherworldly. It's quiet in the big scheme of things. We raise a bit of a noise here, but it's quiet. But it's real. The quieter voice of Jesus to his enemies was, look at the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was buried in the fish in the sea, I am going to be buried three days and three nights, figure of speech, parts of three days and three nights, whatever it is, that stretch of time, I'll be in there in the grave as long as he was in the fish, quiet evidence, but fulfilled to perfection. Jesus lives, He reigns, He is coming again, and the evidence quietly is right here in front of us. But like Peter reached out and pulled the lame man on his feet, onto his feet, so there's a hand that's reached out to you. The hand of Christ to say, turn from your sin, leave your wickedness, leave your self dependence and your self promotion and trust that i sent my son to die in your place to pay the penalty of your sin and he rose from the dead trust that he's coming again are you listening are we heeding let's pray Lord, there is a work that You alone can do. We realize that these accounts seem very fanciful to some without the Spirit. We realize, Lord, that we would never believe them in our own strength. It takes Your powerful work to turn our dull hearts from folded arms questioning, doubting, demanding proof to transform us to a place of saying, If my sins can be forgiven. If God can wash clean a filthy soul, then I turn in trust and confidence to what God has clearly done through the ages and His prophets in the person of Christ and evidenced by an empty tomb. May you draw some to that trust and that confidence today. For those of us who know you, we bow here in humble thanksgiving and we lift our voices as the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God through Christ. May you hear this song as we lift up our words, as we meditate in our heart. May there be a pleasure that you receive and may there be a joy in us that witnesses to the coming age when we will be in your presence and walk in fellowship with you forever. For those who do not believe, I pray that you'd remove the scales from their eyes, that you would tenderize the heart, and that you would help them to see that you've shown them everything they need. For those of us who long to see more because we believe all that you've shown us, Help us rejoice and bring glory to your name and to proclaim this message to a lost world. Through Christ we pray.